0: The question How can we live in a world like this? How can those of us who love God, who are trying to follow His ways, who are trying to find hope in a broken and dark world, live? Trying to follow God in a world like this can be confusing, it can feel frustrating, and it can be alienating. Well, today, as we're talking about this new series about a man named Elijah. Elijah lived in a time much like ours. During the life of Elijah, the nation of Israel had turned their backs on God. Even after having been seeing God's power in miraculously delivering them from slavery in Egypt in giving them a new land to live in and giving them abundant blessings beyond their wildest imaginations, they've been getting further and further away from God. In fact, the whole book of 1 Kings and 2 Kings shows that progressively it got worse and worse with almost every king. And then we finally, as we meet Elijah in 1 Kings 17, where we'll be this morning, we meet King Ahab, who's ruling over Israel. King Ahab had married a woman who was outside God's people, which God had commanded him not to do. He had taken on her religion that was against the God of Israel. He'd established the worship of this god Baal in Israel, and he'd hired priests, he'd build temples. And in fact, we learned just in the previous chapter in 1 Kings 16:33, the pronouncement and the summary of Ahab's reign. It says this, it said, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Shows you who we're dealing with here, right? This is not a good guy. He was not making God happy. And in this series, we're going to be focusing on the life of Elijah in 1 Kings 17 through 19. And the central plot of these passages that we will be looking at over the next few weeks is there's a showdown between Yahweh, the God of Israel and the whole world, and the God of Baal, the God that the nation of Israel had turned to worship. Elijah sums up the message of these chapters in chapter 18, verses 21, and he asks, the people, and by extension, us, this question, which is good for us to think about today. How long will you go limping between two different options? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then him. As I was preparing this passage this week, it struck me. It's I feel this way, and I wonder if any of you feel this way, that often we're limping between devotion to God and devotion to other things, aren't we? Have you experienced that in your life? I might just be talking to myself, but that's okay. What fills your thoughts? What drives your imagination? What gives you cause to have hope and worry on the average day? We may not worship carved gods like Baal. We may look on these ancient people and think, well, they're so silly. Why would you worship a god of stone? And yet, we worship false gods all the time, don't we? Money, power, success, love, hope, acceptance. The list can go on and on and on. These things fight for our devotions. And today we're going to be looking at First Kings 17, and we're going to see several powerful events in the life of Elijah that show us that the Lord God, is God over all. Yahweh is God over all, and we must follow him than with unconditional obedience and complete dependence. Yahweh is Lord over all, so we must follow him with unconditional obedience and complete dependence. So what does this life of unconditional obedience and complete dependence look like? If we truly believe that Yahweh is God, if not Baal, not money, not power, not success, and we've been transformed by God's grace, what, what fruit will we then see in our lives? First thing we want to see today is that if we, the Lord is God, we will follow him with unconditional obedience. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Kings 17 if you're not already there. As CT likes to say it's kind of about a you know, quarter way through the Bible. We're going to start in verse uh, 1 and, and look at a few things in the first half of this chapter. This is the word of the Lord. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook of Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And while the brook dried up, uh, and after a while, the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. And so he arose and went to Zarephath. that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, do not fear, go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me and afterward make something for yourself and for your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. This is a powerful story. It's full of this chapter. It's full of scenes of obedience, right? The first thing we see in this passage is Elijah in his obedience to the Lord, following his job as a prophet to come and pronounce judgment on the wicked king Ahab. He gives a direct challenge, a judgment on the wickedness of the king Ahab. He says there's going to be a drought. Now the nations around Israel in this time, and Ahab and his wife Jezebel, believed that Baal had authority over the rain and fertility. So in essence, Baal controlled in their minds the sustenance of life, rain, crops, Food, the creation of life, and the extension of their kingdom in fertility. And periodically, they believed that Baal would, during the dry season, because we had to explain that, right? They believed he would submit to the god of death, Ma, only to be revived the next rainy season to bring life to the, uh, back to the world. And so they would kind of go through these stages of hope, and there's rain, and then dryness, and we hope that he'll come back, that he'll come back from the dead. But Elijah's proclaiming to Ahab and by extension to all that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the God who rules over all. He rules over both sustenance and life. He does not go away. He only decrees what will happen, not only decrees what will happen, but he delivers God's judgment that will point people to the true God. That if the Lord speaks, there will be no rain until he speaks again and brings it back. And second, after Elijah brings this message... He then obeys God's word to go east to the Jordan, to an unhospitable land. And again, this doesn't seem like a crazy thing. You probably would want to get out of there after you just made a message to the most powerful king of the land that, you know, his God is worthless and that you're going to bring drought to his people. And God sends him, though, to a place that even in the best of days, even in the times of plenty, is an unhospitable place that has a food desert, literally, east of the Jordan especially after proclaiming this, that there would be no rain, he is being sent to a place that even when there is rain is desolate. And in his mind, this surely would have meant starvation and death. But yet, even though it didn't make sense, even though he couldn't see maybe what the next step was, God was preparing him in these smaller steps of obedience for a greater thing that we'll see in a few moments. Even though it didn't make sense, he obeyed immediately. Verse 5, it says, he went and did according to the word of the Lord. God provided for him in unexpected ways as he brought food and ravens to sustain him. A lot of the commentators and scholars of the Bible say, you probably don't really want to even imagine what that food that those ravens from the desert (laughs) brought him. But yet God sustained him even in the midst of what looked like an impossible situation. Even in the midst of drought and famine, he obeyed. Then next, God tells Elijah to go to Zarephath, and immediately he again obeyed. Now, to our da- ears today, this doesn't seem crazy. Again, makes sense. You're going out of this desolate, food barren place where the brook is dried up because of the drought, and you're going to Zarephath. That's a city. That's much better, right? Well, this city, Zarephath, would have seemed an insane place to Elijah, because this is the place where Jezebel was from. This is Sidon. This is the nation of Sidon. This is the heartland, the epicenter, the birthplace of Baal worship. And God is saying, I'm not only going to just send you around, I'm going to send you to cut out the root of Baal worship. I'm going to send you to the place where no one would think that I could be powerful, where no one would think my prophet would be safe, and I'm going to send you there. And again, Elijah obeys immediately. He goes without finding support. This is kind of the equivalent, right, of being a crazy football fan and walking into the big house wearing scarlet and gray, right? Or walking into the horseshoe wearing maize and blue. You're not going to get a good welcome there, right? You're going into enemy territory and this is exactly where God was sending Elijah. He goes out of obedience. And where does he send him? Does he send him to the palace? Does he send him to the business leaders, to the richest house so he can finally get a good meal? No, he sends them to a widow who's literally in the process of gathering sticks to cook her last meal to feed her son one final time before they both wither and die. We see here Elijah's immediate and unconditional obedience to go to a place that he would not be welcome. But we also see the widow's obedience in her encounter with God, right? As God commanded Elijah to go, he prepared the way ahead of him by speaking to the widow and commanding her to feed him. She had just enough food left for one more meal, and yet Elijah asks for that last little bit of what she has, but he says, I promise that God will take care of you. She obeys, she gives it to him, and God follows through on his promise. He sustains her day after day. So we see every situation when the word of the Lord came to Elijah, his response was immediate, unconditional obedience. The question is that I was hit with this week, and I'm going to hit you with now. (laughs) Is this our response when we hear God calling us to do something? Maybe even something that seems crazy. Maybe even something that seems unsafe, that seems scary. Do we follow when he calls, or do we only obey if it makes sense? Do we only obey if we can see the end of the story? Or maybe, which I've been guilty of a time or two in my life, do we just ignore it and hope he won't ask us again? right? Both Elijah and the widow had complete and total obedience to God. They didn't follow most of what he said. They didn't follow partially. They didn't follow only the things that made sense from their perspective. They wholly and fully obeyed what God was calling them to do. I think one way to see the difference in this is to compare our own lives, our driving habits, right? How do we drive when we're just driving normally versus how we drive when there's a police car pulling up right behind us. It's slightly different, is it not? <laughs> maybe I'm the only one. I think most of us could have our driving habits when there's no one behind us as liberally following the spirit of the law, right? We, we see the speed limit, we're gonna stay within a range, but hey, maybe we're late for something, we need to go a little faster. There's no one in the next lane, the turn signal's optional, there's no one behind us, right? That's stop sign, there's no one around, we can roll through it, right? It's a silly example, but what happens when the police car pulls up behind you? This happened to me last night as I was going to pick up my daughters from uh, Troy for, uh, for Camp Woodside. You're immediately aware of what, how fast you're going. you immediately look down. You immediately go not one mile under, not one mile over. You immediately see a stop sign and you pull up and do that three second stop that they taught you in driver's ed, right? That we probably haven't done since then. We certainly will not test a yellow light at that point, right? Our brakes are working very nicely, right? So this is a silly example, but there's, the reality is that there's a gap in the what we do and what we're supposed to do. Our actions prove that. And the question is, what is the gap in our obedience to God? What are the areas that we're living close or God adjacent to, but really going 10 miles an hour over the speed limit? What is the way that God is calling us to do? What are the things that God is calling us to do that we're ignoring? And what steps can we take even this morning to bring that gap and close that gap and follow the things that God is calling us to do in unconditional obedience? And Maybe you sit here today and say, hey, that's a great question. I don't know. And that's an okay answer. If that's you, I think there's one very simple practice to implement in your life that will help. And even for all of us who, who maybe know that better, but it's when you're reading the Bible, which A, implies that you are reading the Bible on a regular basis, so let's start there. But I would write this, these two questions in the front of your Bible. Every time you read the Bible, every time you reflect on what you've read, ask yourself these two questions. What is God saying, and what do I need to do about it? What is God saying, and what do I need to do about it? This will help you cultivate A position of listening and submission to God, a posture of humility. But it will also help you try and glean what God is calling you to do as a result, what he's calling you as his son or daughter, as a people of God, to go out and then take his word and change the world for him. If you struggle with this or that seems so overwhelming or so foreign, the Bible is big and hard to understand, get a friend or mentor to help walk you through that. Ask them that question. Share with them what you've read. Share with them what you're struggling with and ask them to pray with you and help guide you on your journey. That's what we are called to do, to listen to what God says and to follow him in unconditional obedience, just like Elijah, just like the widow. Now, really, Elijah's story in this passage could have ended here really nicely, huh? Many of you are thinking that would be nice if we ended here too, right? But there's a simple, you know, very good ending right here. There's a nice, neat miracle, there's a happy ending, and a perfect time for the credits to roll and moving on into the sunset. But just when the story looks wrapped up in a nice bow, there's a wrench that's thrown into the mix. The widow's son becomes ill and dies. Just when the widow had trusted in God, experienced a miracle of provision, her son is taken from her. And this part of the story shows us that when we believe that the Lord is God overall, we will see the second fruit as well go in our lives, not just, con- uh, not just unconditional obedience, but also complete dependence, complete dependence on God's power and grace. First Kings uh, 17, in verse 17, says this. This is the second part of the story. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to bring my sin to remembrance and cause the death of my son. And he said to her, give me your son. And he took him up from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged. And he laid him on his own bed and he cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned? by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, oh Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah and the life of the child came into him again and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and the truth and the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. This is an amazing second half of the story, isn't it? We can hear the widow asking, we may have asked this ourselves, why did you rescue us from certain deaths, sustain us and provide us, O Lord, only to have my son die anyway? what is this? Are you just making me feel even worse? You gave me hope and then you take it away? However, God had a bigger purpose. He had a bigger plan in this. Remember from before that Baal was the God not only of rain, but of fertility in life. God already had shown that he was in control of the world. He could control the rain. He could provide sustenance to his people even when there was drought. He could go into enemy hostile territories and prove that he alone was the supreme being. However, not only is God in control of the whole world, he wanted the widow, he wanted Elijah, and he wanted all the world to see that he was even greater than our ultimate enemy, death. He didn't do this to give hope and snatch it away, like Charlie Brown with a football, right? He gave this to show in a an powerful and amazing way that he even controls and is ruler over death. Just when the widow has her hopes raised and dash, she sees something that blows her away. He's not like the other gods that she knew, one that simply provides rain and fertility, One that's to be worshiped alongside many others. No, he is far greater. He is our creator, sustainer, ruler, savior, and thus is worthy of our complete and utter dependence. How easy is it for us to depend on God? I know it can be hard sometimes. And even further than that, how easy is it for us to depend on other people? even our other brothers and sisters in Christ. How easy is that? Everything in our culture screams, be independent, doesn't it? For those of you who have kids or been around kids or have been a kid, which I think covers most of us here, we know that you don't have to teach a kid to say no. You don't have to teach a kid to say mine. You don't have to teach a kid to say, I'll do it myself. I want to do it my way, right? And this continues on as we seek for independence. We seek to get our driver's license so we can finally drive and go anywhere we want. We seek to leave the house and under our parents' oppressive rule, right? But it's even ingrained in the American culture, right? The self-made person. We bootstrapped it ourselves. It's the American dream. Everything screams independence. But we, as followers of Jesus, need to be completely dependent on God for our life, for our hope, for our salvation. And one of the amazing gifts that God gives us to help us with this, because he knows us, he loves us, he's our father, he gives us the church. He gives us each other, who are really bad at this sometimes, and puts us all together and says, you're going to learn this one way or the other, right? It's so much easier sometimes to just show up to church for an hour, nod our heads, and then go our separate ways, isn't it? It is much, much harder to do this life together. But this is how God wants us to live. He wants us to depend on each other. So it points us to our need for a dependence on him. He gave us a way to practice this. He gave us the church. He gave us community. So if you're not in community, if you're not experiencing the practice of being dependent on others, I want to encourage you today. The way we do that here at Royal Oak is through our life groups. Join a life group. And no, this is not a paid ad for my wife, who's the life group's director. It's a free ad for my wife, who's the life group's director. <laughs> but in all seriousness, join a community. You will be blown away at how when you go deeper with others, your relationship with God is going to go deeper too. You're going to realize and you're going to experience your need for a dependence on him in a much real and deeper way. So take the QR, uh, the, the slip in your bulletin, the Connect form, fill it out. Give it to someone at the Connect desk. Come talk to one of us after if you're not in a life group. This is a great time to join as we enter the fall. Groups are establishing new rhythms, taking new people. We really, really encourage you, don't do life alone. Do it side by side. Grow dependent on each other and by extension, grow dependent on God. So because the Lord is God over all, we can follow him with unconditional obedience and complete dependence. However, we cannot get this backward. See, many of us are living our lives striving to obey, striving to depend on God, striving to earn our way back to him so that if hopefully we do enough good things, it's gonna uncover the bad things that we know we've done deep in our hearts, right? We're striving to earn our status as good before God, but this is not what Elijah was doing. This is not what God wants of us. Pastor Tim Keller put it this way, I think very well. He says, religion operates on the principle of I I obey, therefore I am accepted by God. But the basic operating principle of the gospel, the basic operating principle of Elijah's life even, is I am accepted by God through the work of Jesus Christ, and therefore I obey. Therefore I go and do things that don't make sense. Therefore, I go to the desert. I go to the the belly of the beast to Baal's hometown. And I trust and obey and depend on God. God in this short story shows time after time that there is nothing over which he doesn't control. There is nothing over which he doesn't have dominion. The rain, famine, providing for his people in their times of need. He can enter the most hostile, darkest areas of this world that seem hopeless and shine light and bring life and bring joy. And even in the darkest, darkest moment of this story, when although God has shown his power over the world, the great enemy death rears its head and tries to take over by claiming the widow's son, her joy and her hope, God proves that even death is not outside his control. And while death continues to remain with us this day, it's our great enemy, it's a great sorrow. The climax of this story when the widow's son is raised points ahead to an even greater story. It points ahead to Jesus, the son who obediently embraced death as a punishment for all our sins, even though he never sinned, even though he didn't deserve that. And God then vindicated him by raising him from the dead just like Elijah raised the widow's son. It's to point us to the fact that Jesus came to conquer death. He raised him from the dead. He established his family, his kingdom that will have no end. There'll be no more famine. There'll be no more drought. There'll be no more war. There'll be no more sorrow. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-two, in Christ, all shall be made alive. This is, is the hope we have. This is how we live in this world that is hostile. It doesn't matter if the world's hostile. We serve the God who's conquered death. We serve the God who can raise the widow's son, that serve the God who can raise Jesus. We serve the God that will one day raise his people. This is the hope we have, that God is in control. Not only of Baal and the powers of this world, but overall, even death. However, we can only experience this power, we can only experience this life by heeding the call to repent and salvation and be saved. Romans 10, 9 through 10, one of the most powerful passages in the scripture and simple calls to this this truth, says that we must confess that Jesus is Lord and by extension that I am not, right? That's what it, all this flip side of that, And believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead and we will be saved and enter into the family of God. It's an amazing promise we have in Jesus. It's an amazing promise we have because of this truth that God reigns over all. So the question today is, have you done this? Have you accepted and humbled yourself before God? Have you repented and cried out for his salvation? If not, I urge you to do this now. This will transform your life. It will take all those good things that God's given in your life that we try to seek after to find joy, but we never do, do we? It will transform those into being things that we can enjoy because of who God has made us. It will take the hard times of life, the trials, the the sorrows, the issues that we have, the thorns in our flesh, and it will give us joy even in the midst of them because we know that it's but for a moment that the worst this world can do to us is kill us. But take heart, we serve the one who has overcome death and overcome the grave. One of my favorite passages in the Bible is Isaiah 25, where the prophet Isaiah is describing what this life will look like when God finally puts an end to death and brings his will to be done on earth as is in heaven. Listen to listen how the prophet Isaiah describes that day. He says, on this mountain... For the Lord has spoken. And that's a life I want to live. The Lord has spoken, and we do well to listen. This is the life that the widow's son was raised for. This is the life that Jesus was raised to secure for us. And this is the life that you and I can experience, even imperfectly now, today, but in the future, perfectly, if we believe. Enter this life of faith, completely obey, and utterly depend on the power, grace, and mercy of God. That's my prayer for myself, for you, for my family, for each and every one of us as the church today, that we will depend on God, who is Lord over all, and will unconditionally obey him and completely depend upon him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this story.